This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And if you remember, because we've been away for a week, I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Monday the 12th of April 2021. Welcome back. Yes, that's right. Well, I said daily, but we have had a week off and um, it's been a really quiet week. Nothing really has happened in coronavirus land, so we're fine. Yeah, well, thanks for listening. Go to the website. No, let's, let's do a recap. Yeah, it's been a massive week, obviously. There's been a lot of um, stuff that's come out, especially about the the main basket that Australia has put most of its vaccine eggs into, which is AstraZeneca. There's been revised advice about which groups of people should get it, and really they're advising against people getting it if they're under 50, which is a pretty big part of the population. So, Norman, what happened for the Australian government to make such a big call with AstraZeneca? Well, they took their time about it. You know, We've been talking about it now for two or three weeks on Coronacast. Um, it's really been hard to escape that this is cause and effect because of the very peculiar nature of this clotting abnormality where it's an antibody response to the platelets, which both reduce the platelets and make them sticky, causing clots. So a very unusual circumstance, which many haematologists would never have seen in their career. And it was happening predictably between four and maybe 15 or 20 days after the vaccine. In a very, very small number of people, but enough that they've decided that it is a cause and effect relationship. Small number of people, but the authorities were quoting, you know, in a per million type situation when the data from Germany said one in a hundred thousand. And then even the UK, where they they were in a bit of denial too, when they started looking, they found one in 250,000 and there's now over 200 cases. So still the denominator is still many millions of vaccines. It still is rare and unusual and for some reason does seem to be more common in younger people, possibly because of some variation in how the vaccine's been rolled out according to age group. That that remains to be seen. So when we last left our audience, the government really wasn't acknowledging that this was a cause and effect relationship. The advisory group on immunisation, ATAGI, was saying it's okay, and then something local happened to change that. Yeah, a 44-year-old man was admitted to Box Hill Hospital and he had uh, had the vaccine, presumably a healthcare worker. I'm not sure that's ever been absolutely, but he had to have been really because he would have been in 1B or even 1A. And he had abdominal clots. So he had clots, uh, spleen, liver, and in the veins from the gut, from the intestine. Pretty sick. So this was a pretty shocking occasion. And we broke it at the AB, the story at the ABC and soon followed thereafter. And I think that rocked the government and Atagi. And really, what they were waiting for after that was what was the what were the Europeans going to say, what were the British going to say, and eventually they came out and said they were going to limit it to people under fifty. The British have limited it to under thirty, saying that um, under thirty they, sh- they should get the Pfizer vaccine, and under fifty here the, the, the Pfizer is the preferred vaccine. We were talking about this on Coronacast some weeks ago. We don't want the government to sort of just have a hair trigger on changing things just because we're talking about something on a podcast. But there was a signal that this was perhaps coming down the track a lot earlier than they've made this decision. And they were still giving out Pfizer to people, for example, in aged care homes. And you, Norman, have made the case that they maybe should have been keeping that aside just in case it did it did turn out that this was something that was an issue for younger people so that there were going to be doses available to give to, say, younger healthcare workers. In parallel with the clotting issue, 
um, there's been a storm about the vaccine rollout. Incredibly slow, not transparent. A story of 3.1 million doses being not supplied from overseas by being blocked by the EU, the EU denying that. And then not even the release, so apparently, of the locally manufactured Astra because they were saying they were waiting on approval from Astra overseas. And what seems to be the case, if you read between the lines, very hard to prove, is that the Commonwealth has been withholding vaccine. Um, They've been holding back vaccine for the second doses. And really what they should have been doing. So they've had one or two million doses, probably two million doses in reserve. They've been saying that this is because they've been waiting for approval. But really, with a 12-week gap between doses, they could have got every single Astra dose they've got out into people's arms. And what they can do now is just get it out there. Don't hold back for second doses. And it's just a lack of transparency at the moment as to what's going on. Is it such a bad thing for them to be holding back vaccines when there does seem to be a problem with supply? And especially when a few weeks ago we didn't have our local supply up and running here with AstraZeneca. Well, Pfizer makes some sense because that that's not guaranteed on a monthly basis and there's three weeks between doses. So you are going to get into a bit of stuk if you don't have some Pfizer in reserve. But there's 12 weeks, three months. Get a dose of Astra today, you know, in the middle of April, middle of Mar- middle of May, middle of June, middle of July. It's the middle of July. If we haven't got a, a second dose to supply you in the middle of July, there's something really wrong with the system. We could be getting every Astra dose out into people's arms, and we probably could be getting more Pfizer if we've reserved every single Pfizer dose. So we've probably used many thousands of Pfizer doses in the last few weeks, which could have been reserved just in case we needed them for healthcare workers under 55. Remember, the general public under 50 is not going to get any vaccine or be eligible for some time to come. So there's time to actually wait there. But nurses and doctors in 1B are an important group of people who need to be protected. And you mentioned Pfizer, and we did hear last week that there's 20 million doses that Australia's managed to secure of Pfizer. Where have these come from and where are they? So just to be clear, it's 40 million in total. They already had 20 million. 20 million would be enough to immunise almost everybody under the age of 50, between the ages of, say, 15 or 18 to 50 years of age in Australia. So the doses they'd already booked would be enough if they actually had them. But of course, they don't have them. We were late to the party. Several countries, including the UK and the US, had done their deals in July. We took until November. And we it's very unclear how serious the discussions were with Moderna. Moderna are still out there touting how, how proud they are of the new deals that they're doing around the world. We did not book any Moderna either. We are in a bit of trouble here. And we had enough Pfizer to immunize this group of people. So now they've got 20 million more, but who knows when they're going to come. And where they're going to come from, presumably, is when America is immunized, Pfizer has got a lot of vaccines that are producing and they're going to be looking for a market for them. So Pfizer's probably pretty confident that they can supply that by the end of the year because they're done and dusted in the United States. Is that such a bad thing, though? Like from a global perspective, we're really, I know people want to travel. There are lots of really, really good reasons why we should be vaccinating Australians as quickly as possible. But America's in a really bad way with a lot of coronavirus. Maybe is it good for them to be prioritised from a global perspective? It's a good argument, but there's a political argument as well, which is that it's quite likely that the world is going to be opening up to international travel as 
as richer countries become immunised and we're still going to be locked out and locked up and um, yet safe without any virus around. But that is going to become a political issue as the world opens up and we don't. And so while we're talking about Pfizer and AstraZeneca, there has been some claims made about the risk of blood clots compared to risks that come from other medications. Can we just break down the relative risk of blood clots from AstraZeneca and how it compares to other more familiar drugs that we might have heard of? The risk of um, clotting from AstraZeneca, if you believe the German data, it's one in 100,000. Finland would say, and some, and I think a couple of other Scandinavian countries, it's more common than that, one in 70,000. But let's say it's one in 100,000 German data. British data, based on more immunization, says one in 250,000 doses. At the press conference the other day, the Prime Minister uses equivalence the risk of clotting from oral contraceptives. So the risk from clotting from oral con- there is a risk of clotting from oral contraceptives. It's uh, deep venous thrombosis mostly, and it's mostly while you don't want to have it, it's not. It's mostly not fatal. A, a, a fatal clot from oral contraceptives is incredibly rare. And when you look at the combined data of many years of use of the combined oral contraceptive and the low dose one, because the higher dose estrogen preparations, which haven't been used for many years, did have a higher risk of thromboembolism. It's about 16 per 100,000 women years. This, this issue is important because it's of DVT, different mechanism. Different type, different type of clot than we're talking about with AstraZeneca. Different level of seriousness. And if you do the maths on 16 per 100,000 women years, so it's like 100,000 women have got to take the pill for a year for 16 of them to 16 of these women to experience a DVT. There are other ways of, exp- of expressing this as well. So if you translate that to doses, and it's not a do- uh, you know, one dose of an oral contraceptive and you're going to get a clot, it's kind of a cumulative risk over time. If you, do- if you actually analyze it according to doses, that's 16 per 30 million doses thereabouts, because there's, there's roughly five days a month or so that you don't take an active pill. It's about 16 per 30 million, which is about 1.87 per million doses, which is still lower a risk of than the AstraZeneca vaccine. And it's not as serious a clot. So it's, it's not a, a fair comparison, really. Right, because it was one of the things that was being mentioned in the context of this to sort of put it into perspective, but you're saying that it's a lot less risky. And can we talk about also just the relative risk of other vaccines? Because am I right in thinking that if AstraZeneca was the only vaccine available to us, or if the scale of the pandemic was much worse in Australia, the risk of taking it would pale into insignificance compared to the benefits. But because we're in such a good place in Australia where we don't have a lot of virus circulating and because there are other very good vaccine options around, that's why we have the luxury of maybe saying pump the brakes on this one. Yeah, but other countries are doing the same thing with a lot of a lot around. And Cambridge University did quite an interesting equivalence in terms of exposure rates, which is why they came to the conclusion of 30 years of age. But we've got very little risk from COVID-19. So it, you know the balance is all on the side of the vaccine at this point. So it's just got to be really prudent. And there have been other vaccines in the past taken off the market or restricted because of risks. And um, so this is not the first time we've had a problem with some new vaccines. So, Norman, let's say that this had come to light during the clinical trials. Would the TGA have maybe not approved this in Australia? Well, if it had come to light in the trials, it would have been a rate of about 1 in 40,000. 
So it would have been even commoner than it's turned out to be. They would, they would have noticed this in the trials if um, you know, it had been much more common. Interestingly, the Janssen vaccine had one report of thromboembolism in their trial. Which one's the Janssen vaccine? That's the Johnson & Johnson one. It's also oh. a viral vector vaccine. And there, there are unconfirmed reports of, of other cases with Johnson. Maybe pro- this is a problem of viral vector vaccines, but it's too early to say that this is a problem with Janssen. But I think that they would have had a dilemma about approving this vaccine if this had shown up. I mean, we canned the University of Queensland vaccine which showed no harm and showed a transient rise in some people of HIV antibodies, which could have been solved with different testing in blood transfusion centers. And we canned that without any major side effect at all. So on that basis, if you've got a problem that turns up at trials at a, at a rate that you would see in trials, and the reason you're doing a trial is to turn up serious side effects I think they would have a problem getting registered, but it was it's less common than that. Just on the age thing, Nikki's asking, well, Nikki says, I still fail to understand why it's okay for over 50s to be given the AstraZeneca vaccine, but not for those under 50. And the only conclusion Nikki can draw is that people 50 and over are less important than the younger cohort. Is that a fair estimation? No, it's not. It's it's that the there, and we'll talk about this later on in the week, now, good studies showing about showing infection fatality rates, and it's exponential how how much older you get. So we are still at risk of a serious winter pandemic. So the the, the issue about the rollout is we've got to get this rollout as quickly as possible, so that the vaccine is is in as many arms as possible before winter starts. Because if we get some escape of new variants of concern that are highly contagious into the community, it could run away from us. And that's why we've got to immunise and protect people who are over 50. Because they're most at risk of serious disease. Yeah, and the the Astra vaccine is the one we have. And the evidence from overseas is that the risk is extremely low once you get beyond 50, 55. Well, I've got heaps more questions for you, Norman, but we're going to have to save them for another day. Thanks so much, you guys, for coming back to Coronacast this week. We'll see you tomorrow. And if you want to ask a question, go to our website, abc.net.au slash coronacast. Click on Ask a Question, mention Coronacast, and we'll try and get to them this week. See you later.